Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I'm Gabby Reese, and welcome to the show. When I hear something that doesn't do what I'm expecting it to do and forces me to lean forward and listen closer, mm-hmm. it's a very good experience. The, the unexpected, I feel like surprise and unexpected are a, a really uh, integral part of what makes good art good. It's is that it, it operates beyond the face value. It pulls you in to question something. Meditation practice or practice of doing the work leads to the kind of life where you, you don't have problems. What used to be a problem isn't a problem. It's just another another opportunity for um, understanding. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today is a really special show for me. Every show is special, and I'm so grateful to always have the guests. But this show, I was a little uncomfortable to do. I was I was stressed out to ask the people to do it, but I, I just really knew it needed to happen. So my guests are author Stephen Mitchell and music producer Rick Rubin. The way this came about was I have a friend, Elijah, and he's like, oh, you should interview Rick Rubin. Rick is a friend of ours. And I thought, yeah, right. Like Rick doesn't even barely want to talk in everyday life. I'm going to interview him. I'm not a musician. I didn't know how I would do it, but there was something there. And so I was going to bed that night and you know how it happens. The universe, God gives you an idea. And as I was going to bed, I thought, oh, I know how to interview Rick Rubin. I'll do it with Stephen Mitchell. And the reason that is, is several years ago, I had asked Rick, and I tell the story in the podcast, forgive me for the do-over, but I'm just going to set it up for you. Hey, how do you control your environment with such little force? And he said, I'll give you a book. And he gave me a book that was the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, but it was the version by Stephen Mitchell. So I thought, okay, this is how I can talk to Rick. Just to give you a background on both of them, uh, Rick's one of the founders of Def Jam Records. He's produced acts from Run DMC, The Beastie Boys, Johnny Cash, Slayer, Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, it goes on and on. He has probably more than nine Grammys. He's hosted uh, a podcast, Broken Record. Side note, he is a huge fan of wrestling, which is one of the weird things I love about Rick. And Stephen Mitchell, who, you know, Stephen's one of the smartest people I've personally met. This is a person, you know, he's like, books are my friends. And he did a version of Tao Te Ching. He says it's not an interpretation. It is a different version. He did the Bhagavad Gita, the gospel according to Jesus. He wrote a book with his beautiful wife, Byron Katie, Loving What Is. I encourage you to listen to that. He's a Zen monk. I mean, this is a high thinking person. So my hope with this was to set them across from one another and to use the Tao, a book important to to Rick and one that Stephen is so obviously passionate and informed about and just have them connect on a few passages. I didn't, I wanted to talk very little. 
I used a few passages to sort of spark the conversation. Again, it's hard for me to ask my friends or people that have a public job to do these interviews. I feel protective of them. I know things about them. But this felt important, and I'm I'm really relieved. And also, I want to thank Laird because he he kind of hunted Rick Rubin down for me a little bit <laughs> to help me make this happen. And I will say they have a lot in common. And I want you to listen to the answer of when I asked them each about their parents. Um, I thought it was an interesting answer. So I I hope you enjoy the show. Rick and Stephen, thank you for coming to the house. And the reason I I am beyond, besides I adore both of you, is a while ago, I've, I've been friends with Rick for many years, and I've observed with a lot of curiosity and wonder, Rick has so many unique ways of behaving. And so one day I got the courage, because I try, I don't, you know, pry too much. And I said to Rick, one day I would like to really speak to you about how you have this art or knack for his environment reflects him so fluidly, but there's no force. Mm-hmm. And me, I, and Rick knows me, he, you know, and Laird, sometimes, it, you know, you feel like you're pushing and molding and all of these things. And I would observe Rick and I thought, oh, he has some other way. And he goes, I'll give you a book. And so he gave me your book, mm. this book. This is the book that Rick gave me. Yeah, did you? And I had read the book, but I didn't maybe re- I looked at it with new eyes. Mm-hmm. And then since I've had the good fortune of knowing you through your beautiful wife, Byron Katie, I just wanted to take the opportunity to talk to both of you, real life application, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in sort of doing a different version of it. Cause this is not, you're saying this is not a translation. You're like, this is a, is a different version. Mm-hmm. So I want to make that clear. And just get your feedback. I, I really just want to be a part here. And then, and also just talk to you about a few things um, about yourselves that um, I, I think kind of cross over and have some interesting parallels. So thank Sounds you. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. So Rick, why, I know you, you picked up, first of all, how did you get introduced to meditating at 14? Dumb luck just just happened it was no uh it was meant to be because it happened no one in my family meditated had no connection to it i had a hip doctor the doctor that delivered me was a hip doctor in the 70s dr pizzicano his name was he had a goatee i went to see him when i was in junior high school because my neck hurt he's the doctor who delivered me and he said that's stress and and i recommend you learn to meditate and i remember thinking that my parents would not go for that. But my parents said, oh, that's what the doctor says. That's what we'll do. Oh, so cool. Yeah, and then I learned TM at 14. Mm. I came to learn later the fact that I learned it when I learned it had a a big impact on my life, had a huge impact on my life. I didn't notice it until after I, I meditated up until I went to college. I stopped in college. Then I moved to California after college and started up again. And when I started again, I realized, oh, this is a big part of who I am from the time that I had done it. This this really informed me has how I live in the world. Even even in the period when I wasn't doing it, the fact that I had done it for the years that I did it. Once I understood that, 
I found myself more connected over the course of my life once I realized this is a big part of how I um, manage my way through the world. Mm-hmm. And in college is when you really got involved with music. So it's an interesting that you started one very big thing in your life, your, your craft, mm-hmm. and then, you know, go back and then combine those two things after. I think it's interesting. Um, I don't know that I combined them. Well, it's, I mean, reintegrated meditating. Yeah. But still, I was interested in other things when I was meditating, but it, I think part of it, the reason I stopped was I moved into a dormitory. It was different. I, I didn't have the privacy of my home anymore. Now I'm in a, I'm living in more public space and it, it just didn't feel like, I didn't feel like that was part of this communal living situation with a bunch of kids I didn't know. I'm an only child, not used to being around other people to begin with. And now to be, you know, having two roommates was a new experience. And Stephen, you, I feel like in some ways too, I mean, you're both from New York and you, you, I've heard you say. I'm from Brooklyn. Yes. (laughs) That, you know, books were your friends and, and Rick does have, he just said he's an, he's an only child. There's sort of this inner world that, Hmm. that you lived in. And then you went to Cambridge and, and you were studying Zen. So again, a, a kid from New York. How do you how do you get there? Because Rick's way is is very interesting. But then, how did you sort of say, "Oh, I'm going to do that"? Well, um, if you don't mind a slightly long story, I um, love long stories. This uh, I, I was in a very conventional mindset uh, up through college. I was a good student. I was fascinated with a, a number of things. Uh, one of them was the great German poet Rilke, whom I fell in love with. Um, uh, my girlfriend, when I was in Paris for my junior year, gave me a a French translation of Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, and that changed my life, maybe in certain ways, as it did yours. But uh, that that's where I was with, you know, high culture, loving it, fascinated with it. And then... My life changed when my girlfriend dumped me. She was my first girlfriend. I was, I thought eventually we'd get married, et cetera. And I was devastated. And um, in the months after she left, I found tr- tried to find in what I knew, which was mostly Western literature, I tried to find places that would somehow helped me get through the experience. And what I wound up with was the place in the Bible that seemed to me to be the deepest addressing of the uh, problem of human suffering. And that was the book of Job. So I read the book of Job in the King James Version. And I thought, you know, there's whoever wrote this, whatever poet wrote this, had seen something about the world and had seen through human suffering somehow. And I know it. And there's that, it was like listening to music in a distant room that I I knew was my music, but I couldn't hear it was so far away. So I decided to learn Hebrew to get to a state of intimacy with that book. And I did. And then once I had learned Hebrew, I 
uh, discovered how odd, how b- really bizarre in a lot of places the book of Job is. So I had to learn um, some of uh, comparative ancient Semitic philology and then textual studies, et cetera, et cetera. It was one thing after another. But once I had made that commitment to understanding, I just took it in, in stride. Fast forward six years. I I had been translating the book of Job as a way to get closer to it. And I woke up one morning and it was very clear to me that although I was writing what I considered a beautiful translation so I could get closer to it, I was no closer to understanding that, what, what that poet had seen. So I decided to go to India to try to meet a master. I had fallen in love with a, uh, an Indian master named Ramana Maharshi, and I thought maybe somebody's still alive in India who would, who was enlightened and I could, who could help me understand. So I started to learn Hindi. I was going to leave for India, and before I could buy a, an airline ticket, a friend of mine said, "You've got to go to Providence, Rhode Island, and meet this monk that I've been." meditating with. Uh, He says he's a Zen master. I don't know about that, but he has very strange eyes. So I went down, I saw him. First time I looked into his eyes, I knew that he understood. And he asked me what I was doing. I said, I was going to be leaving for India. He said, no, don't leave. Stay with me. I will teach you. And he did. He did a very good job. He had only four or five students at the time. He had come to America with no money, very little English. And he was a, a great teacher with open flaws, and it, it, it didn't last more than five years. But during those five years, I was meditating a minimum of four hours a day, and it was usually more like six. And some one week every month was 12 hours a day. And there were certain solitary retreats that I did as a way of um, intensifying things that were either 30 days solitary or 100 days solitary. I did two of those. So it was intensive training. And um, uh, a year after I started with him, I had my first opening where everything became clear. And there were Zen texts, like the teachings of uh, the Zen master Huang Po, or the Diamond Sutra that were absolutely closed to me before the experience and were as clear as day afterwards. So it was a, a, a very uh, clear transition. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rest of my Zen practice for many years was um, consisted of uh, working on the places where uh, I had sticking points, where there was, uh, you could say, karmic deficiencies that I needed to get clear about. And um, that was, and um, to some extent is my work. I I also um, gained a, a or the most powerful tool when I met Katie, Byron Katie. uh, And her, her work is in my experience, the greatest compliment, compliment to a, and a, to a practice of meditation because it allows you in meditation. One of the things about meditation, I can talk about this from my own experience and the experience of 
a number of friends who have been meditating for 20, 30, 40 years, there are certain unclarities or, uh, how can I say it? Uh, well, let's say unclarities that are so embedded in our consciousness, so hidden to our ordinary consciousness and hidden even in states of meditation that, that we're not even aware of them to, to work on them. One of the wonderful things about Katie's work is that it brings up hidden unclarities the way um, anti-venom poison brings up snake poison. They come to the surface and it allows you to see them, to know that these are problems and to actually have a method of evaporating them, not through any kind of resistance or force, but simply by questioning if they're true or and seeing the emotional effect that they have on you and seeing who you would be if you didn't believe them, what what a wider world, a more limitless world is available without seeing things through that concept, through the filter of that concept. So it's a very powerful practice. And that was really has been really important to me over the last 22 years. That's would a long answer. Would to you call them assumptions? The it's like, uh, it's like there are assumptions that we have or stories we tell ourselves that we can't see past we just accept them as what is exactly so. and through her work we get to realize that they that it's it's a story it's a story it's we're a story ourselves. it's a thought you know and and that reminds me of one of the perhaps confusing things in the Tao Te Ching there, there are a couple of lines that go empty your mind of all thoughts let your heart be at peace and that's very true and very good at advice. But when the Tao Te Ching says, empty your mind of all thoughts, it doesn't, as I feel, it doesn't mean to get to a state of no thinking because that's not possible for one thing. For another thing, I've seen um, videos of people who claim to have no thoughts and their whole emotional attitude is flat. There's no emotion that I can see, and it's so unattractive. Uh, one of the attractive things about a deeply enlightened person like Katie is that the enthusiasm, the emotion, the love of life, the the compassion is at its highest. And it's so attractive, the heart being opened is, is a deeply beautiful thing. And... Uh, if it's possible not to have any thoughts, I don't want any piece of it. What I think that line means is treat your thoughts as things to be questioned. Treat your thoughts as not necessarily true, but something you need to investigate. And when you are able to question any thought that is stressful, it can occur to you a thousand times and it will cause no stress because you've already seen through it. So you don't need to get rid of it. You don't need to empty your mind in that sense. But when the thoughts are questioned and they appear, they have no power over you. So in that sense, your mind is empty of them. 
I like Katie's phrase. She says, I treat my stressful thoughts as children who need my attention. I love my children and I want to give them every possibility for expressing themselves. That seems to me a totally sane attitude Mm -hmm. towards thoughts. And when you empty your mind in that sense, then your heart is at peace. You don't have to do anything to get your heart at peace. It naturally occurs when you are able to have that attitude towards your stressful thoughts. So, Rick, I'm, I'm going to pull you into this because I think one thing you do, again, I'm going to pretend you and I are the householders, but you're like a little, you're more advanced than me. <laughs> And we'll let okay. we'll let him be, you know, the master. Yeah. And and I was Great. joking. I wanted to call us the master in the Zen because for me, both of you have both. But let's say someone has sort of sometimes, occasionally, an inner. You know, we're, we we are we're physiology, we're hormones, we're a lot of things. And so, what I'm curious is if if you and I know you use tools like meditation and things. When that inner disruption comes, and maybe you have already the skill, which a lot of people don't, to say, oh, I'm going to question these thoughts, and I'm gonna, am I going to yield to that it's true? I, I'm not going to, but you still maybe have an upheaval. Um, you've also learned how to navigate that as well. Well, I mean, the challenge, it's always a challenge, but I yeah. do my best. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm better at it than I probably used to be. <laughs> you you seem as if you are able to coast over the waves. I do my be- I do my best. You know, I, I try my best, and I and I'm not attached to any um, any stories of how I think it's supposed to be. You know, it's um, when things come up, it's like it, it'll either be oh, that's that's a that's a nice surprise or, Oh, I, I wasn't expecting that. I wonder what's going to happen next. You know, it's like, uh, watching the, I'm watching the movie, you know, I'm watching what unfolds. I, I don't feel like, um, I know I get to participate and that I get to make choices, but I don't feel like it's completely on me. I feel like I'm a participant in this bigger thing that's going on. Hmm. And, um, I'm watching it and essentially riding this wave to the best of my ability, but I'm not the wave, you know, I'm, I'm finding my way through. Mm-hmm. I just bring that up because more people experience that. All of us experience that. And, um, and I think that it's just reminding people though, that you have those choices and, and you talk a lot about, when we can not be in the I or me, that there is a liberation to, and Rick just said it so beautifully. It's like, it's like you're a part of it, but it's, it's not me and I, and that there's a lot of suffering that goes on when we're in sort of our singular selves. Uh, that's very true. And as with many things, there's a complementary truth. That's the opposite. Um, and I'll give you an example. Whenever I have a problem, which is maybe every couple of months, it's usually with something that Katie says. And I will spend a couple of hours, maybe, hurt. It never is more than overnight. But from the beginning, the thing that's 
so amazingly helpful to me is that I always know it's my fault, not fault necessarily, but it's up, it's up to me to fix. It has nothing to do with her. Well, that's Which is power. a great liberation. So, you know, I, I will take a thought that's at the center of that upset, usually fairly small upset in me, and investigate it either formally through the questions of the work or simply with a kind of Zen questioning, which has no content. It's just pure question without any thought or words or anything. It's just, and I know that space so well from all the decades of of Zen practice. So I hold that thought and eventually it never takes more than overnight, it will unravel. And the next morning I'll go into the kitchen, Katie will be there, I'll give her a, a big smile and a big kiss and hug and, and it's over. But it's that bringing it to the self that is so important. And it, it doesn't conflict with a um, understanding that there is no self. I mean, I, I wrote a whole book on the Diamond Sutra and Katie about the fact that the Buddha's insight that there is no such thing as a self. So it's it's really useful to be able to hold conflicting opposites together in a kind of Keatsian sense of, Keats had the um, phrase negative capability, which is the mind's capacity to be in a state of um, non-understanding without irritably reaching after the truth. And that's a very fertile mental space, Keats said at the age of 23, right before he died. Wow. Uh, anyway, so that's- I, I like that space. Yeah, I, that? Like, I like when I don't understand something, when, I'm, when it's more interesting when things are not apparent on their face. I, I like to be, uh, I like to watch a movie and not understand what's happening. I like that feeling. How does that work in your, in your music? It's it's a part of it. It's like, um, for example, you have an example. Yeah, I, I can't give you sp- a specific example, but I can say that when I hear something that doesn't do what I'm expecting it to do, and forces me to lean forward and listen closer, mm. it's a very good experience. Mm. The the unexpected. I feel like the surprise and unexpected are a, a really uh, integral part of what makes good art good it's is that it it operates beyond the face value it pulls you in to question something you know i, I have another thing to add to to this in, in my experience it's very like what one of the major themes in the Tao Te Ching, which is not doing which doesn't mean that you you know are sitting on a couch all day drooling, it, me- it means that you're not forcing things, that you're letting things come to you. It, you know this very well. But I, I have uh, had that experience with books many times. I'll give you one example. After I finished the Tao Te Ching, I wanted to clarify my feelings about Jesus of Nazareth, whom I had been attracted to ever since I was a nine-year-old Jewish kid in a Christian school, private school, and hearing stories about Jesus from the headmaster every Tuesday at compulsory chapel. 
So I got to the age of 30-something, my late 30s probably. I published the Tao Te Ching. Yeah, I was 35. Uh, and, and the next thing was to get clear about my feelings about Jesus, because I was I find found him extremely attractive, and yet there were passages in the New Testament that I felt were disgraceful. And I couldn't, I didn't have a way to bring those two together. I couldn't start the book. I tried, and it wasn't happening. So I waited, and I gave myself to a couple of other projects, but I was always listening, waiting for further instruction. And after about a year, I got a call from a foundation in San Francisco that said uh, uh, they were awarding me $10,000. I'd never heard of this place and no idea they had this award, but there it was. So I I had $10,000 to spend, which was a lot of money for me at the time. And the next day, I was at a cafe in Berkeley. I was living there. And I met uh, an Israeli man who happened to be a guide. And he said, oh, I'll, I'll take you to through Galilee, you'll see the places that Jesus hung out at, and uh, and it will be great. It will help your book. So I went with him. I spent a week in Galilee, kayaking, um, uh, looking at the at the sites, and going to the site of the Sermon on the Mount, supposedly, which never happened. And there's a horrible, all ugly, vulgar Italian church commissioned by Mussolini on that spot. And after a week, I, I told my guide, you know, it's just not happening for me. I don't understand why I'm here. And he said, well, let me take you to the Sinai. I was there as a soldier in the 70s. And it's an amazing place. So we went to the Sinai and hired a guy, a Bedouin guide. And as about a, an hour or two into, into this magnificent granite wilderness, he stopped and he, he prayed, he had to pray. It was time for prayer. And as he was praying, you know, going down completely on his on his knees and hands and saying, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, I could see that this was a man who had surrendered completely, which is the me- meaning of Islam. It was so moving to me. I was almost at the point of tears. And I wanted, my body wanted to go up beside him and do the prostrations beside him because I was so moved by that surrender of his. It was so, so beautiful. And I stopped myself because I thought it would freak him out, a, a, a Jewish man entering his religious space. I didn't want to do that. And I thought it would freak out my Jewish guide as well. But I was doing it in my mind. And over the next few days, I observed him closely. And he he seemed to like me. He invited me to his private garden and introduced me to his six children. And I saw him treat these children with sternness, but with such love and I saw how they respected him. I'd never seen that in American children. And after that experience of, of getting to know well, and also I, I interviewed him at the end of the tour because I wanted to give him some extra money. And my Jewish guide said, don't do that because it will be an insult, but hire him to do something and he'll be able to do it. So I hired him to give me an interview. 
and he talked for a couple of hours, and there were some things that came out of his mouth that were almost quotations from Jesus about, um, he said, whenever a poor person comes around my garden, I always give them fruit because God gives his reign to the poor and the rich and to the evil and the good. And I just want to share this way. And anyway, very moving for me. And when I got back to America, I started writing the book immediately because I had seen what Jesus meant by father. This, uh, it was like, if you take the word patriarch with all our, with all that we know about, about women and misogyny and, and feminism, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's right to be very wary of that word. But if you take the word and print it as, as it were, and take print it from the negative and see, see the opposite of what we uh, naturally don't like about it, then that was what I was meeting, the positive image of the patriarch. Whatever, whatever the best thing you can imagine about the good father is what I saw and what let me write. All of this is to say that it was that waiting that was so productive and creative. And when I heard the signal to start, those two signals from the, you know, the the grant, the financial grant, and then meeting that patriarch, it was so clear that I had a green light. And in fact, I did. Yeah, it's amazing how the universe sets up the conditions to allow the thing that you are waiting for to happen when the time is right and it is out yeah. of our control. Yeah, and it and it can take quite a while sometimes. And what I most learned, I would say, from my years of Zen practice was patience. Mm-hmm. You, when you're meditating 20 hours a day in a freezing teepee and nothing's happening and all you're seeing is uh, replays of uh, something your mother said to you when you were seven years old or, you know, your knees are in, are in, inflamed to the point where you think you can't go on. All of this is happening and you simply, your job is simply to stay there and let it happen. And that's a great teaching in patience. How did you end up going to Christian school? Um, the public school in my neighborhood in, in Borough Park in Brooklyn was famously poor. So my parents uh, thought it would be a, a good idea to send me to the only private, well, not the only, but the, what they thought was the best private school in Brooklyn, Poly Prep. And um, my grandfather, whom I adored, who, who was a, a wise man, thought that... Um, I, I probably wouldn't get in because we were Jewish, but I was smart, so it was worth a try. And in my, I was in fourth grade, in my interview with the headmaster, when he asked me what books I was reading, I lit up and talked with great excitement about Treasure Island, and uh, he loved it, and so I was in. And um, it was a wonderful experience for me. The teachers were great. I just thrived. and. I stayed there through the 12th grade. So that's how I ended up there. That's great. 
and the uh, the chapel was you know it it was really a surprise but it was a very uh, profound experience for me i liked christian hymns i didn't like the music in our synagogue i thought it was bland and sometimes ugly you know 19th century band music basically and the 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 christian hymns were honest um honest work sometimes they actually had pleasant tunes to them anyway i loved it and that's that's how i ended up there i've i've always liked any um spiritual congregation regardless of faith just it's interesting to feel uh be around people where there's devotion going on. It's a beautiful feeling. I always mm. like it. Mm. Rick, when you gave me this book, when the Dao Te Ching, when were you, well, first of all, why do you give it to people? Um, it's, it, it just, when, when I first read it, it, um, it felt like it answered a lot of questions but it didn't answer them in a way where it gave me the answers. It, uh, uh, mm-hmm. it, it allowed me to um, examine things in a new way and find, it, find new ways into thinking about things. And, and I found over the years that every time I reread it, which I do fairly often, I take away something completely new. It, always. It, 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 it continues to refresh itself, mm. uh, depending on who I am when I'm reading it. It's so it must have some sort of a mirror like quality in that depending on who I am when I read it, it changes. I love that. I love that. That's I, I feel a wonderful like, way to experience it. I feel like Katie's work has the same thing. You know, she, I love her expression. I don't have answers, but I have a lot of questions. And when she pitches you, like, is that true? You know, it's you doing the discovery. It's not someone telling you. And I and I really appreciate that about this book and about the work, which mm-hmm. is that inquiry or hearing it the way you need to hear it at that moment and it being different each time. Um, I I would like, if it's okay, just to read a couple of the chapters and just get your take on it and... Um, I, what I also appreciate is, like you said, you can some days just open it and read one chapter and see whatever you need to see that day. Um, so this is uh, four. The Tao the is like a well, used but never used up. It is like the eternal void filled with infinite possibilities. It is hidden but always present. Mm. I don't know who gave birth to it. It is older than God. Mm. Mm-hmm. Fighting words. <laughs> right? Yeah. And if anything lands that you guys want to share about any of them, or one that you would like that feels important to I you. I want to ask about how how the translation or the new version came to came to be. And going back to the Job story, mm-hmm. you, you read Job and then you decided to learn Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And what did you learn by reading it in Hebrew versus when you first read it in English? Um, yeah, the, I was reading it in um, in the King James Version, and yes. the state of Hebrew scholarship 
in 1600 was fairly primitive. So there were a lot of words that they didn't understand and that they were understanding from the ancient Greek translation. And that has problems with it. And the, these misunderstandings on the part of the King James translators, and they, I should say that most of the misunderstandings were perpetuated in the committee translations like the, the um, well, I won't name any, but um, they continued those, those misunderstandings. So when I learned Hebrew, I could see some things that changed my understanding of the book 180 degrees. One example is at the end, when, when after Job has this magnificent vision of a world of complete dynamism without any moralistic judgments on it, uh, the animals, the, the essence of nature, what this is telling us, if we look at it without our human assumptions and, and pre, preconditions, that lit up with an intensity a hundred times greater than when I had read it in English. But after Job has this vision in the King James, he basically says, now I've, I've seen you. I, I've, I'd heard of you in the past. Now I've seen you. Um, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm mortified and uh, you can just, you know, do whatever you want. Uh, those are those aren't the exact words, but it's the uh, the intention of what what King James is saying. And what I discovered is that the words don't mean that at all. They mean now I have seen you. I am comforted by what you had said because I am no one. Which was profound. It wasn't the speech of a slave talking to a master. It was the speech of somebody who had seen something life-transforming that, that allowed him the liberation of no investment there. Anyway, so that's one example. As to how, your other question was so as I'm to how about I began. The Dow. So, so with the Tao, what, what did you start with? Yeah. And how do you... Can anyone know what the original author intends, and and what's that like taking on the 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 mission of a translation or a uh, or a retelling? How does that work? Okay, I'll, I'll I'll tell you a story about how I came to do it. Yes, and then I'll I'll tell you what it was like in the process of writing that book. So after. After I um, gave up being a, a monk in Zen practice, I met a woman who later became my wife. And in the first stage of getting to know each other, um, I shared with her what my attitude to money was. You know, I was, I, when I was a monk, uh, of course, I had, I had nothing. When I became a monk, I gave all my money, all the rest of, I had, had a legacy from my grandfather. So I was living off that at about $2,000 a year for seven years. And um, I, I told her, you know, in the Jewish tradition, the community 
supports scholars. They don't have to earn money. They sit in the house of study all day long and read the Talmud and supposedly get some wisdom that way. And uh, that's my attitude. I'm, I'm just not interested in money. I think it's a more spiritual following Jesus and the Buddha to um, not, not to be involved with money. I'm just not interested in them. I, I really don't want to. So she raised, appropriately raised an eyebrow and said, uh, you know, sweetheart, I think you may be cherry picking the tradition. And here's, here's what I see. Unless you are able to let money into your life, you won't be able to send your books out to a, to an, a substantial audience because you won't be able to deal with the money coming back from the sale of the books. And I really think you should look at this more seriously. So I did. And um, I tried this and I tried that. And my, and my books were still selling, you know, several thousand copies. There were po translations of poetry, et cetera. So I was, you know, after a, an intense effort at making money, I was still making maybe $5,000 a year. And after a couple of years, seeing her having to be the only one paying the mortgage, et cetera, I was really mortified. And I said, you know, I have to I have to take extreme measures, so I'm going to do another 100-day retreat. It will be a mini retreat, only three hours a day from midnight to 3 a.m., but my intention will be to somehow get to a saner place about money. So on, on the 94th day of this retreat, I had a vision of Yoda from Star Wars. So he was right before, like three feet away from me. And it, it lasted for maybe three minutes. It was he was as near to me as, and as as real to me as you are, Rick, right now. On the ninety fifth night, Ryota came back, and the ninety sixth. So after the hundred days were over, you know, and I I'm not somebody who's much interested in pop culture, uh, so it was particularly interesting for this to be that kind of image, and I I kind of smiled at it afterwards. But I, I asked myself, you know, why did this happen? What is this telling me? And so it seemed to me, here's my answer. I'm going to do a translation of the Tao Te Ching that's called the Book of the Force, and it will have a commentary by Yoda, and it will sell a lot of copies. So, so I began, <laughs> and when I got to about halfway through, I called George Lucas and he told me through his an, an assistant that uh, it was a fascinating project, but he didn't want his character involved with any particular religious tradition. And I thought that was fine. So I changed directions. I was translating Tao as the force, but I went back to the Tao, and the commentary became mine, not Yoda's. And that's that's how it happened. But if I hadn't had Yoda and that framework, for beginning those first two chapters, I wouldn't have allowed myself to be so free with it. Mm -hmm. Now, the work itself sometimes was straight translation. I was, I had, I don't know Chinese. Luckily, I found a copy of a late 19th century American translation uh, that had the Chinese on one side and opposite each 
ideogram that had an English word or phrase. So I could see how the Chinese was moving. And then I had on my desk about six different English translations and a couple of German and a couple of French. So I was able to see more or less the, the extent of a single word, how people were dealing with it. And I could get a sense of what the literal was, although in many cases, the original text is like a Rorschach test. I mean, it, it was all over the map because it's so elusive to most people. Now, these translators were all scholars of Chinese or philologians or theologians. And I felt I was coming to the project with deep experience in meditation. And it seemed to me that nobody else had this. Mm -hmm. So I was understanding things from the ground level that Lao Tzu was, or whoever Lao Tzu was, or his, the, the, the disparate uh, writers that are bunched together and called Lao Tzu. Um, in any case, one, there, were, there were certain chapters or certain parts of chapters that seemed to me were coming from a, a much lower level of consciousness than the rest of the book. And when I came to these, I tossed them out the window and improvised. So I was improvising on the same theme that was happening in the book, but the actual writing, I was placing myself in the space of the writer that I had been translating and creating out of that space. So that's why it's not a translation, it's a version. And I'm amused by, sometimes I was amused when I was giving readings and the publicity for the book. I was amused uh, when people would come up to me and say, you know, my favorite chapter is chapter 50, which is completely improvised, yeah. has nothing to do with the original Chinese, things like that. So anyway, to, to, to finish the story, uh, the book sold, has sold over a million copies by now. And, that solved my money problem. I was able to pay half of the mortgage. And I was very pleased with myself for doing it. That's amazing. Have yeah. you ever looked back on the uh, discarded chapters uh, with new eyes later? I still think they're very dull. Yeah. <laughs> not, no, it's interesting. Not insightful. And I quote them actually in the, in the notes section to I this see. so people can compare. Yeah, I see what I tossed out with what I came up with. And uh, it's it's quite interesting, I think, yeah. I'll reread the notes. Yeah. I usually just read the text. I rarely reread the notes. Been yeah, they're, they're interesting. I read them, you know, just again. And uh, it is interesting, though, how not different, but just... Well, Laird, your husband, pointed out one oh, yes. pretty good one to me this morning, actually. Uh, I had forgotten that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I, 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 my, I forget books that I write. So sometimes yeah. when I open a book and read something, I think, "Wow, that guy really." No, it's amazing. I, I understand that experience. I, I get surprised sometimes. I'll hear a piece of music. I'll be out at a coffee shop, and a piece of music comes on, and I'm thinking it's really good. I want to know what this is, and then it ends up something that I worked on. But it, it happens because they go through you. You know, once once they're out, they're out. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. 
I don't know about you, but every time I travel, I kick myself that I haven't spent more time learning whatever language it is in the place that I'm visiting. It's like you want to connect with the people in a real way. Well, immersion, you know, that's the best way. But most of us can't move somewhere and, and, you know, live there and learn the language, even though that's number one. But number two is with Babel. And the reason that is, is first of all, they have it's really quick. They've got 10 minute lessons, and but they're handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. But what I love about it is it's designed by real people for real conversations. It's like, listen, we all want to know, like talk about food and directions and things like that. And Babel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations and delivered with conversation-based teaching. So you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. And that's the other thing I love is just combining that because you think, okay, maybe using a trip that you have planned or getting together with family somewhere, using that as your motivation to get going. And you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that maybe don't really even help you you know, speak a new language. In fact, studies show, there was one study, they did studies at Yale, Michigan State, that Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours, that's nothing, is equivalent to a full semester at college. They've got over 16 million subscribers sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's the incredible offer. For a special limited-time deal for our listeners right now, you can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash Gabby. So to get 50% off at babbel.com slash Gabby, that's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash Gabby. Some rules and restrictions may apply. I always am curious, Rick, about your, I won't use the word confidence because you're not going to look at it that way, but the outside, most of us would just, it doesn't seem like you've stuck yourself in or, or never, it never occurred to you to stick yourself into one genre. You just say, okay, I'm going to do a rap album. Now I'm going to do country. I'm going to do metal. And I think Part, and, and Stephen has versions of this in his types of work that he's doing. And I just was curious if you, because you have curiosity, because you're not, you know, sticking to a formula, that that freedom, where you got that sense of, of freedom, because a, a lot of us are scared to change or try it different or new, or they, you know, a lot of people get slotted really early. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what you do. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could just talk about that. that yeah, I have, I have a funny answer. Just it just it just occurred to me that I probably don't know that much about any of them. So it's like I don't feel like I'm, even though I've had success in different areas, mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm an expert of any of those areas. So that's my thing. It's like it just so happens that I've participated in these different things, and I come at all of them with the same sense of sort of wonder. Mm. I may like them. And I may have a, a an an idea for a way to get into them that's interesting, but just to me, you know, it's just uh, this is how I see this is the interesting version of this thing. This is my the interesting version of this thing. 
So I've never had a, um, because I have no training to do it a particular way, Mm -hmm. it's always a new, it's always new. It's always, there, there are no rules to follow really. And you, I mean, the fact that you can say, I'm going to do a version and sort of really tap into the tone of the writers I've been reading and can sort of improvise a whole new one. I feel like that has the same idea of the freedom of not thinking there's so many rules to everything. It's, you know, it's it's uh, very, what Rick was saying is very much like uh, a famous Zen book called um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which, uh, and the great quote from that is in the, there are few possibilities in the expert's mind. In the beginner's mind, there are infinite possibilities. I'm I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, and that's that's really true. Like re- what I'm working on now is a, a version of selected poems from the great Roman poet Catullus. And uh, I'm not an expert in that area. I had to refresh my high school Latin, but my Latin's pretty good. And... Um, I think I can see things that experts don't necessarily see. So, you know, I'm barging in again in an area where people are very protective. And, uh, you know, uh, I'd like to say one thing about that chapter that you read, if I may. I I was hoping, yeah. Which is, uh, what does he mean by older than God? God is a concept. And um, as... Beautiful a concept as it is, you know, infinite, all loving, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's secondary because it requires thinking. It requires some kind of conception of a, a good. And reality happens before that, before any concepts, before we're able to interpret the world at all. That's the elemental. That's the Tao. And Anything else, any religion that comes out of that is always secondary. And if we are faithful to the primary, we don't get caught up in the kinds of problems that the secondary provides. Anyway, that's that would be my take on that line. That, that line really hits me hard. I wanted to cry when you read it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it it doesn't strike me base it doesn't strike me the way that you're suggesting and it's interest it's interesting to hear you say it again i don't think that there's a uh, that's again the beauty of this mm-hmm. is it's yeah. very open to interpretation very open and um i would question whether could not that concept of god be in fact the tao why not? <laughs> Do you and, know, like, and, why not? That and in the be. great, in the, the greatest Christian writers, it, in my experience, like Meister Eckhart, yeah. or the cloud yeah. of unknowing, it's exactly that. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but I'm still, move, I'm still, it's not when I hear it, I don't reject it. It's like, oh, yeah. that's not what it is. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful and I love it. Yeah. But, but I also, it's like, or it could be, or it could be one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And it may have been clearer uh, if if you read it as it is older than God in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. So either way is good. I love it. I yeah. love it. It's a 
it's a beauty. And do you remember what the what the thing that you're translating? What was number four in its? In yeah, its... I I don't remember, but if I had to guess, yeah. I would think that that's fairly literal. The older than God line. I think so. Um, wow. I'm not sure. Wow, wow, wow! I can no, check beautiful. it out. And no, let I'm, you know. I'm just curious. Yeah. And it's interesting that you don't remember. That's great. Oh, no, I don't I remember anything. <laughs> so um, this leads me to 17, which before I read it, I want to ask both of you, because you are who you are. Besides being born, you're intelligent people. I mean, we there's people who are born with natural creativity, intellect, things like that. Is there something that your parents did or didn't do that allowed you the freedom or push, not push you, but just the gates open for both of you. Because I think a lot of times, um, you know, something when you're younger, just there was, there was less restriction or, or the question of what, why not? Why can't I do that? Who wants to go first? Oh, sure. Um, well, um, I was a, I have to say I was adored by my parents and my grandparents. I just had that kind of childhood. And um, I think what it uh, allowed me was uh, not to have to work on um, parent-child issues, which takes a lot of energy. But I don't think I would have become a particularly creative person if it hadn't been for my girlfriend dumping me. That was That was the great challenge that allowed me to work through it into being a creative person. By the way, um, 18 years later, after she left me, I had just come out with my selected poems of Rilke, which was a, a great success. And I got my first couple of copies. I sent her one. She wrote me back a very warm letter. A warm we met in New York. We spent four days together. When she walked into the restaurant and I saw a 40-year-old woman as opposed to my 20-year-old image, 21-year-old image, and she sat down, we began to talk. I knew immediately that it would be extremely good, and it was, and I felt that I was loving her for the first time, and she's still a, a dear friend. But that closing the circle, mm. I had that twice in the same year, just something handed to me on a silver platter with my Zen master too. And um, yeah, so. So you were adored. Rick, you said you were an only child and I know your parents were, I don't want to use, I'll use the word accommodating. (laughs) More than accommodating. Right? Like I feel like they were like, Ricky, what do you want to do today? Absolutely. I I was, uh, both of my parents were very childlike. I was the adult in the house (laughs) from the time I was a, a, a a child, I was always the adult, hmm. um, and they always, whatever, I could do no wrong in their eyes. Hmm. And then I had a second mom, my mom's oldest sister, who never married, never had kids, and she was my mom on weekends, oh. and she was the cultured one in the family, oh. and she would take me to the theater and would take me to museums and would take me to um, interesting movies. What and- city? In New York City. Yeah. Oh, in New York. Yeah, and yeah, she. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and she. Um, she was a creative director at Estee Lauder, and uh, just 
in the fashion world and I got to see a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have been, that, that my parents were not connected to. So I, I had in many ways the, a perfect storm of great um, support growing up, maybe to the point of um, unrealistic, but that leads to the, the unrealistic belief in that you can do anything. Mm. Um, I, I definitely uh, had, there were no boundaries of what, what I was told I could do. Mm. Yeah. So this, this leads me to 17, which pertains to parenting or governments. When the master governs, the people are hardly aware that he exists. Next best is a leader who is loved. Next, one who is feared. The worst is one who is despised. If you don't trust the people, you make them untrustworthy. The master doesn't talk, he acts. When his work is done, the people say, amazing, we did it all by ourselves. I love that line so much. Me too, it's fantastic. Uh, and, you know, I, it's funny because Rick, Rick knows us very well and you've been ta- you spent time with us, with mm-hmm. Brody and, and such. And mm-hmm. I just, you know, Rick, I, I watch you and I, um, the, your stillness is sometimes a very, it's just a nice reminder. So whether you realize it or not, I'm like, well, it works. So maybe you can trust that a little more because both Laird and I are sort of doers and let's do it. You know, Rick will hear us like call for the girls and he's like, oh, so loud. I'm like, Brody, you know, and you can see Rick is just like, oh, these people. Um, so I just, I just wanted to say that. So for each of you, and again, um, Rick, we'll start with you, this urge and desire to, to, to create. Is it? Have you felt it always there, or is I'm just? I I like to make things. I, I like to make things. It's fun. It, it it was always fun. I didn't I didn't choose it as a profession. It it chose me. Mm-hmm. I was doing it because it's what I like to do, and then and I was going to have a real job, and then it turned it it turned out to be something that people liked and asked me to do, which is shocking. It's still shocking to this day. I still can't mm. believe it. Well, and you came out of the gates hard. Let's face it. Those first several years, I mean, it's like a little Cool J, Beastie Boys. It was just no, boom no, and bang. No, um, with no aspiration, you know, like other than wanting to make something great. No, right. no commercial aspiration. Just wanting to make something good for my, you know, to make my make my friends like it. You yeah. know, make something that my friends would like. That's was always the extent of the desire. What do you think the real job would have been? Let's just say. I would have been a lawyer. And I would not have been a, I would not, or not have liked that life. It wouldn't work well for me. Yeah. In, in a courtroom? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I, hope, I don't know. People might not. lean in and listen. They'd be like, I don't know. We can listen to this guy. <laughs> I hope not. I don't know. But the, the, the piece that you wrote really speaks to me. I try my best to have as little, um, it's funny to say, to have as little impact on the work that I'm working on as possible. Now, when I say that, I want it to be the best it can be, and I'll do everything within my power to be the best it could be, and I'd like to do it with as little, I'll even go as far to say involvement as possible. If possible, it, it's whatever it, whatever it requires. I'll do what's required. But that's all. 
And I really, um, I can remember an artist who I made five albums with and then uh, we stopped working together. And then I saw, I saw him years later and he said, I have no idea what it is that you did in the studio with us, but whatever it is, would you please come back and do it again? Mm, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the, the, my goal is to get to the point where I can produce an artist without having ever met them or speak to them, yet have the work that we are doing together be the best work of their lives. That would be the ultimate version of it. Haven't gotten there yet. That sounds right. Rickle sent artists home with homework. I love this. I've heard mm-hmm. you tell this story where maybe someone's maybe having a challenge. Mm-hmm. Instead of directing them or telling them, he'll just say, can you go home and write a word, one word or something down? Mm-hmm. So it's like a great coach, actually. It's, it's the, the instincts to know what this person, this artist, this performer needs at this very moment. And people, there are people that are naturally like that they just they know they they feel the person they know like oh they need a push they need a hug they just need to be left alone um mm. whatever that is and, and what about you what the urge well, you to, know, inside because i know the urge to learn is powerful in both of you but to create well with me uh i backed into what i do um through the Job story, you know, my I didn't want to translate it as a aesthetic exercise. I was famished for that understanding. I was just uh, it it consumed me. So translating was a means to an end at the first time, um, but it it ended. Uh, very well for me and and um my other projects were a lot like what rick is talking about except my people were dead so um you know there was no feedback but there didn't have to be i too wanted to do the best for them yeah and write at a level of of excellence that that i could un, that i could recognize so for instance, um, you know, my current project with the Latin poet Catullus, when I read, I've read other translations, I, I've done all the scholarship, which is fascinating. But when I read uh, the other translations, it's an experience of, of uh, a successive wincing. It's, you know, ow, oh, he, he used this word, Catullus would never have, or Oh, that is so vulgar. Or the rhythms. Basically, it's the rhythms too. The rhythms are ugly and um, have nothing to do with the, the kind of music that that Catullus was producing. And I, my job in all of these is to create not something not only parallel in meaning, but parallel in rhythm that's at least as important as the meaning. So um, I think I'm able to do the same thing that you are with live people, with my dead people, because, you know, it's like that chapter says, trusting them through trusting yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I trust myself never to be writing a word because I think it will affect somebody in some way. It's always my own sense of integrity that is that is producing these words. And if if I come back and look at a a second or third draft and see that there's something inauthentic there or something that even a millimeter off from what seems to be the genuine reflection of the original text, I'll go back and spend hours on it, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes days on a word, mm-hmm. um, because that's what's important to me. Being faithful to this great, great poet. And it's it's like, you know, it's like in a marriage, it seems to me, that there's no difference between faithfulness and freedom. It's the same thing. By being faithful, you're 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 giving yourself a freedom that has no limits. And the freedom itself um produces another level of faithfulness. I feel that with 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 my books and with my marriage. I think in with the artists I work with the, the same that that the only my only goal is for it to be as good as it can to my ears. I never second guess. I never second guess myself. I never think of an audience. I never think of a who the a, who the end user is. I only think about my experience. And if it and if it's not moving to me, I don't expect it to move anyone else. And if it moves me, I hope it'll move them. But that's the best I can do. I can't. I can't get into someone else's head. I can only be true to what I feel. And I'm looking for those moments of feeling. And what you what you said about being true to the poet, to the original poet, it's like, um, it's, it's another act of devotion. You know, it's like you're devoted to them. So it has to be as good as it can be on their behalf. And that's, and you take on the responsibility of allowing them to be their best. Yes. Beautiful. That's exactly. And, you know, going back to the Tao Te Ching, um, you, somebody might think I was being arrogant, uh, at tossing those sections out of, out the window and improvising. But my feeling was, you know, either that the original writer had a bellyache on that day or was having a rough time with his wife, or it was an inferior writer who was collected with other writers in this collection that was supposedly written by the mythical Lao Tzu. Anyway, it's my faithfulness to the to the writer who wrote most of the Tao Te Ching and the best of the Tao Te Ching allowed me to be unfaithful to those sections of the text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's another there's another paradox that appeared to me while you were speaking. It's that there's a sense in which total selfishness can be beyond the self. You're trusting your instinct over everything else is a kind of self selflessness mm-hmm. because it's it's not trusting the ego, it's trusting what you're responding to. It's trusting the Tao. It's not trusting the ego. So so pure selfishness in that way is is a, 
a blessing. Yeah, and and it's funny you can use the word selfishness, but I don't think of it as selfishness if, because of the the intention of it isn't a selfish intention. It's mm -hmm. it's being it's being true to yourself in service mm. to whoever it is that you're collaborating with, alive or dead. But you have to, in order to do that, you have to get to the point somehow through some kind of practice where you can trust your own instinct 100%. Mm -hmm. there, there's an old Zen thing which says uh, something like, if you can walk a thousand miles and not hear anything anybody says, you're mature in your practice. And uh, there, there's, that's very powerful. This, you know, when you talk like this, I was gonna ask you both about sort of being people who interpret and elevate other people. Both of you, I mean, Steve, Stephen, you have your own works, but ultimately both of you in a lot of your work are elevating and protecting other people's visions. And so I- Including I, Katie. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, of course, Katie. So that leads me to, this one's a little bit longer, 28, but it's exactly what you just talked about. Know the male yet keep to the female. Mm. Receive the world in your arms. If you receive the world, the Tao will never leave you and you will be like a little child. Know the white, yet keep to the black. Be a pattern for the world. If you are a pattern for the world, the Tao will be strong inside you and there will be nothing you can't do. Know the personal, yet keep to the impersonal. Accept the world as it is. If you accept the world, the Tao will be luminous inside you, and you will return to your primal self. The world is formed from the void, like utensils from the block of wood. The master knows the utensils, yet keeps to the block. Thus, she can use all things. You read that one again? You like that? Yeah. The whole thing? Beautiful. Yeah. Know the male, yet keep to the female. Receive the world in your arms. If you receive the world, the Tao will never leave you, and you will be like a little child. Know the white, yet keep to the black. Be a pattern for the world. If you are a pattern for the world, the Tao will be strong inside you, and there will be nothing you can't do. Know the personal, yet keep to the impersonal. Accept the world as it is. If you accept the world, the Tao will be luminous inside you, and you will return to your primal self. The world is formed from the void, like utensils from a block of wood. The master knows the utensils, yet keeps to the block. Thus, she can use all things. It's so good. What I picture when I, when I listen to that mm. is... Um, the world as a puzzle and mm. each of us is a piece and if we allow ourselves to be the piece that we are mm. we plug in and fit neatly and we're part of this whole and or we can fight with it and there'll be the whole of where we uh where we fit and where out here by ourselves, uh, trying to create, trying to be a different shape. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, 
it, it never works. It never works. It's, it really is about acceptance is what, what, I'm, what mm-hmm. I get from that. I love it. I'm just curious. Um, let's say you're navigating as you, you're human beings or, you know, susceptible to gravity like all the rest of us. Things show up, um, challenges, life. Um, how do each of you, um, even, you know, for me dealing with health things has always been that and my children, right? It's like Mm. trying to navigate those two realms. Do you have, where do you find the grace or the, that acceptance when that's something that's right in front of you personally? Is there, is there a moment that you acknowledge your, your human angst and fear or is there such a high level of surrender already that you're able to slip into that? I'm just curious because, again, both of you are very masterful, but you're still waking up every day and putting your feet on the floor. And I'm just curious um, how you translate those kinds of moments. Um, well, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, I had... Um, cancer a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, when I got the diagnosis, my reaction, this is, you know, at age, what, 76, three years ago, or 77. Um, basically, my reaction was, oh, what comes next? There was never any fear. There was never any anxiety. I started to do my homework. The next step was deciding between surgery, radiation, immunotherapy. It was immediately clear to me immunotherapy was the way to go. I did. There were weekly infusions. It was no big deal. I would go. They would stick a needle in my arm. I would read enjoyably for two hours basically a nothing burger every week. And there was no uh, physical reaction from it. And then, um, and then after a year, it was over. And uh, I'm cancer-free. And that was my reaction. It, it, didn't, it didn't cause ripples because whatever the result was, it was good to me. You know, it, okay. I... It, if I died, it, it was fine with me. I, w- I would be sorry not to be there as a husband for Katie until she died. But that was the way of the Tao. And I was very comfortable with it all. So I think that, you know, meditation practice or practice of doing the work leads to the kind of life where you, you don't have problems. What used to be a problem isn't a problem. It's just another another opportunity for um, understanding. I'm thinking about how, how to uh, best answer this. Because I can, I can talk about um, what, what feel like uh, life-threatening events that mm-hmm. come up. And, and I don't even need specifics. I just was, I'm interested in how you, because I've seen you go through some things, and mm-hmm. just when it lands, what are your moves you know like i would say i get more um worked up over smaller things you know i get more worked up over um 
probably things that don't really matter mm. so much. For for big things, I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> but sometimes the little things, I'll you know feel like nitpicking. Yeah, you know, I, I don't. The um, death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. Maybe. Yeah, I think Laird's a little bit like that. Maybe. It's just shit like, hitting the fan. I don't Laird's like to be cool. annoyed. You know, I don't like mm. to be annoyed. Yeah, uh, and it happens. So. Yeah, but um. But I think with the big stuff, I do pretty good. Mm-hmm. I try my best. Yeah. I try my, and I've seen, again, you, you, as you know, just we've had a, a, a series of yeah. events that um, it's nice to be on the other side of. Sure. And I just continue on with gratitude and thankful for the day, yeah. you know, every day. And does the, does the creativity and the, the family, it's also... It's probably also a good outlet, I would think. Or it just puts everything right in perspective. Absolutely. The, the family is the, for, it's the key to the whole. For me, the, the solid nature of my home situation really allows me to, to be, go, go crazy out in the world mm-hmm. because I have these... Uh, the solid foundation at home feels great. And I think it's true too with my parents mm. having the solid foundation of my upbringing allowed me to really go out on a creative limb in a fearless way. Mm. You both share um, a lot. There's a lot of parallels and um, one of them is in a different way. You both were well into your adulthood before you found what I would consider from the outside your big loves. It seemed like it came whispering to you a a little bit later. I mean, that's got to be pretty exciting. That's fantastic. Very very blessed, very blessed. Is there something that surprises you about how different parts of you are because of that? Just everything's better, I I think. Mm. I think everything's better kind of like a new room too it's sort of like you get to be a different part of yourself i would imagine than you maybe experienced prior to that well i think I'm, it, it, it's the feeling of not looking for anything is a great feeling it's a great feeling of feeling like settled mm. i really i like that feeling i like that feeling more than being alone mm. Mm. that says a lot for you Hmm. I feel that way too. I mean, I'm an only child and I always used to joke like, who are all these people in my house? And I'm like, oh yeah, it's my family. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, you know what it is? There's the sweetness of when everyone's where they're supposed to be and in bed, you know, when you're going to rest that night and they're all there. Yeah. It's good. It's a good feeling. There's like you said, there's nothing else. Yeah. 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 It's a good feeling. And Steven, you, you have the love of your life and interesting a comrade. I mean, there's something, Katie's work and your work and the elevation of each other and, and kind of real world expression of it. Because for me, it's like she's almost like the real world expression of a lot of your words. Like if you read yeah, the Tao, you know, and, I, and then there's Katie who's like, is it true? You know, <laughs> and you're just like, oh my, this is it in real time. The thing is, I, after I met Katie, I happened to be reading that the book again and in the introduction i have a description of the master 
Mm-hmm. It's just pure Katie. This was like <laughs> 17 years before I met her. Mm-hmm. And um, this is another example of trusting one's intuition. When I first met her, I mean, first meaning the first seconds of looking into her eyes, I could see how, how deeply enlightened she is. And I, I had hung out with Zen masters and people who had reputations of complete enlightenment, etc. And she was on another level. I could see a heart completely open by looking through her eyes down into the depths. And it just rocked me so hard because I thought I was pretty far along on the, on the path of the Buddha. And that the first instant of looking into her eyes was a combination of enchantment, astonishment, and mortification because of of my arrogance, yeah. um, but it, you know that I never, uh, I never have wavered from that first understanding of of the depth of her enlightenment. It was it was just profoundly moving and um, beautiful to me. Um, so so that's where I am with her. I'm still I'm still um, sitting before her with a with my palms together. In 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 addition to the fact that you get to share your life with her, the fact that you found each other and that you are the perfect vehicle for her to get her share her message with the world, it's a perfect relationship. Isn't it? It's amazing. It's a perfect because she, relationship. You know, she she comes from um, a small town in California. She had one year of college. In my terms, she's a totally uncultured, mm-hmm. uneducated, mm-hmm. and beautifully so, uh, basically open to anything. So when I first met her, I was reading to her from, from Lao Tzu, from the Buddha, from this and that, from my anthologies, the Enlightened Heart, the Enlightened Mind. I was trying to impress her. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and she would come out. Just talking in an ordinary conversation with things that were right from the Upanishads or or something that the Buddha said. And she didn't know it. She had no idea. And it was also a great pleasure to be introducing her to my loves in high culture, like yes. you know, War and Peace and and um Vermeer and Matisse and Bach and Mozart. That's that's where I live in music. And she uh introduced me to things like the Eagles, whom yeah. I hadn't listened to, and Leonard Cohen, yeah. who was a great enhancement. Uh, anyway, so it was it was wonderful. We were complimentary in that way. And if somebody w- were writing the script for um, a book about questioning, they would have brought Katie and me together yeah. in this world. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So lucky. You'd appreciate this, Rick. I went sea bobbing with Katie. <laughs> like six months ago. Oh, okay. Just isn't afraid of anything. Um, I could keep you here all day, but I, I won't do that to you. I'll just um, I'll just uh, want to read a couple things. So, Stephen, I asked you for your favorite nonfiction books. So you said one, uh, which is um, fiction was War and Peace, and uh, Tristram Shandy too. Tristram Shandy, and nonfiction was A Thousand Names for Joy. And a mine at home with itself. I just want to drop that off. Yeah, those are two Katie books. 
and you, that Rick, I is, her with. You, yeah. Did, Rick, do you have, I know you have a ton of books. Uh, is there just one that you want to drop off for the audience that has at this moment sort of excited you? Well, anyone who hasn't read the Stevens Dow, that's, I don't know a better book. I really don't. I've never, I've never come in contact with a better book than that one in front of you. That's as good as, as good of a recommendation. And the beauty of it is even if you've read it, if you read it again, mm. it'll be just as good and a lot different and, and just as new. Well, and it, for me, I, it's like even Katie's four questions. I just use them as tune-ups. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we get, I get lost in my emotions and the smallness of my insecurities or whatever. And it's like, it's an amazing thing where a couple of questions or a phrase can just pull you right out of it and, um, and really help you. So I have one more that I'll read that we can finish on. But before, I just want to say I appreciate both of you so much coming out of your way. It means so much to me to know you both. And I love you guys individually and I learn and I'm inspired by you. And I, I wasn't, I was like, I really want to get them together because I see this sort of transferring back and forth. When Steven's talking about you're waiting for the rhythm in a book and, and just both of your approaches, um, I just thought it would be really exciting and a treat. So thank you. And it has been. Amazing. So this is 33. Um, Knowing others is intelligence. Knowing yourself is true wisdom. Mastering others is strength. Mastering yourself is true power. If you realize that you have enough, you are truly rich. If you stay in the center and embrace death with your whole heart, you will endure forever. Mm. So, so good. Do you remember how close that is to where it came from? It, if I had to guess, I would say it's pretty free. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's pretty free. Wow, beautiful. Well, we can we can check, but yeah, not I'm necessary. No, I'm cu- no, but I'm curious. Yeah, I, I will. You can check the notes and see if there's. I will. Yeah, because it, it was part of my integrity to to supply the literal as well there. Mm-hmm. So people can compare. If you don't speak, if you don't speak an original language, how can you feel the rhythm of the writing? You can't. What I saw in that old edition with the ideograms Mm -hmm. was a very crude way of uh, progressing from one basic concept to another. And I could sense something of the movement but it would not be at all the way that somebody who speaks Chinese would sense it. However, with this particular book, it is so all over the map. And I said Rorschach, that's yeah. pretty close to, if you, if you compare six translations of a particular chapter, even only in English, not in French or German or any other language, you'll see that they are wildly divergent. So um, knowing the original language is not as important, it seems to me, for this particular thing as it would be for uh, other kinds of, of language. Um, yeah, so that's... And hypothetically, if, you, if there was a language that you didn't speak, would it be helpful to hear someone 
read it in the original language? No, not to me, because uh, it, it, it wouldn't take me into the world that that's coming from. It would be alien sounds that I, that my brain wouldn't be able to process. Understood. Um, but if I know if I know even a little bit of a language, um, that can be important to me. Yeah. Do you find that when when you read things uh, translations either in French or German or other other languages, are there tendencies that you see that? English translations tend to be this way and French translations tend to be this way, or are they all just different? And the same for biblical translations is, do, are the ones that are, are the Hebrew ones much different than the mm. English translations or are the uh, Greek, you know, the Septuagint mm. really different? Very, very, very different. Um, the, I don't, I don't sense any, particular differences between English translation, English language translations as a whole and French or German, but mostly the tendencies are uh, to be, to protect themselves. Um, Translators are usually quite conservative and the poets who translate who are not conservative are sloppy. Um, and it's embarrassing to me, usually, yeah. uh, certainly with what I'm doing now, Catullus, and I would say also uh, Dao De Jing. And it it happens even with really good translators. Like I'm thinking of Thomas Merton's um, Shuangzu, which I partly grew up with as a young man. But when I became, here's another example of waiting. After I finished the Dao De Jing, my heart's desire was to translate a selection from Xuanzu, who's Lao Tzu's disciple, who's one of the funniest writers ever and one of the most profound. There's nothing like his combination of wisdom and humor in any, any literature that I know. In any case, I wanted to do him. So I settled down after the Dao De Jing came out. I was totally blocked. Nothing happened. And yet, I knew I had to do it. With me, a project, I know a project is going to be fruitful if there are two things that happen beforehand. One, I have the awareness that this is beyond me. I don't have the skills. I don't have the wisdom to do it. And the second thing is, I have to do it. If those two things happen, I know it's it, the book's going to proceed. So, So I never... I kept the the Shuangzu in my awareness, and 15 years passed, I think it was. And um, I had another circle in my life close with a relationship that had ended and that resurrected in the most amazing way after after 15 years. And with my ecstatic state of mind after that for a few weeks, I started the, the Shuangzu and I knew how to do it. I, I knew I had to be free in a way that I couldn't allow myself before. So that happened and I called it the second book of the Tao. But no. that was waiting for something that I could not control, yes. but I knew had to happen. I didn't have any idea when. Mm. Um, so, uh, 
that was a digression. I forgot where I started from. Does no, anybody he, know? Yeah, Doesn't no. Matter. Well, Rick, and Rick, actually, let's and for you too. Does it show up when you know you're going to do a project, or, or is it an exploration? How does that work? Yeah, it usually starts with an exploration until you realize there's something interesting to happen, and the, the challenge piece of it is a is a good one. If it's more of the same, it's not as um, stimulating as when it's a it's a new problem to solve it's a new problem to solve and trying to find the way in and and there, and it's fun not knowing you know it's fun it, and and i will say it is a little scary every project i start i have um anxiety before we start because i really have no idea what's going to happen i really don't and and um and then once it reveals what it wants to be, it's a great feeling of um, excitement when when you see what it can be. Mm-hmm. And then like, it's like, okay, now it goes from this like blank slate of, I have no idea what's going to happen. I know we're not done until it's great. That's all I know. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how long that's going to take. And I don't know when that's going to, when, when we're going to get a clue. Uh, but then when... You know, you, you just play with no expectation. And then when something happens like, hmm, this, this, and this seem like these are the clues of the direction we're going to, let's try that and see what happens. Sometimes mm-hmm. it is and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a false indicator mm-hmm. that gets you started and takes you in a completely different direction, which is great where it wants to go. Okay. Um, but but it's n- never a preconceived, there, there may Sometimes I'll have a preconceived idea as a backup, like an emergency plan. You know, like if nothing good happens, we can always do this. Mm -hmm. But I never start with that. I always start with free, like free, free play. And more often than not, there is not an emergency backup plan. But there have been some times where it's like, if nothing else works, we can do this. You know, my experience is is similar to that. but it's not, of course, working with live people. What, what, what I, my, my experience is usually of listening. I will write a, a literal, say, say I'm translating a line of Catullus. I'll write it literally mm-hmm. and it's always crap. And I'll, 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 I'll look at that line and as I'm hearing the sense of it, I'm also at the same time listening for a rhythm. It's like uh, it's uh, like counterpoint. Both things are happening, and there's a certain point at which I will be given words to fit into the rhythm that it has to be. Mm-hmm. And line by line, it's always a surprise and a, a, a joyful surprise when it it configures itself into a rhythm in the most amazing way. And I'm not doing it. I'm just there to listen mm. and to write it down when it, when it comes. And it's sometimes it's like an hour, hour two hours. And the listening is pure. It's just, you know, it doesn't allow other thoughts to, to interfere. It allows them to, you know, to go right through, but it, it's a, a, a pretty ferocious focus on, on nothing. 
you know. Are you do you ever do it out loud or is it always silent? No, it's always silent, but it it's silence that has potentially has sounds to it, yes. words to it. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. You're 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 hearing it internally. Yeah. Yeah, and it's there's always a, a discrete point at which I can move on to the next line. You know, I I know it's not crap anymore, it's pretty good. And then when I go back to it, I can refine it and I may go back to it, you know, two hundred times mm-hmm. uh if necessary. But but the listening is what the the my practice is, and that allows the words to to have a kind of genuineness to them, at least in my sense. In at any point, do you read it out loud? Once you have no, it, you never, never read it out loud. Never. Wow. Yeah. Uh, when I read it, it, it you know, I'll, I'll modify that. There's a there's a state in, that's kind of in between silent and out loud. Well, where I'll read it in that way when it's getting toward being finished, um, but not literally out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for for me, the out loud part is really helpful. Loud, I will, I will loud, so and out loud. <laughs> no, just out, just out loud. To if I'm working on something, actually hearing it, not just imagine hearing it, can help me. Mm. I can hear things in the phrasing in a different way when I hear it out loud. Like uh, last night, an artist was sending me lyrics, and I said, just sing it into sing your phone it. and send it to me and let me listen to it that way. And it's different. Like, cause it, it, I want it to work both ways and sometimes it can work on the page, but sonically it's different. It's, uh, I want it to be sonorous as well as well-written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I went to a Black Sabbath concert with Rick. It was really amazing. He just mm. closes his eyes and listens to it, <laughs> takes it in. That was fun. Thank you. That was a I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks Thank you guys. For, thanks Love you guys. for Thank bringing you. us together. I'm so happy. Place. This is fun, amazing. Wasn't it? Thank you. You just needed Justin. You didn't need me. You guys are awesome. Thank you. That wraps it up for today. Make sure to follow us on Spotify for free episodes and subscribe to The Gabby Reese Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Gabby Reese on Instagram and Twitter. Aloha. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.